So let me begin with again a little explanation and, and a word about this message that was given to me. So Mala sent me a title for a message that's going to be given at a women's conference. And the title was A Vision for Biblical Motherhood. So that being said, I will be speaking specifically to the mothers in the room, although I do invite everyone to listen and to glean because I think it'll be profitable. But as I began to think about that title, and I think it probably happened when I didn't have the title in front of me, my mind began to go in two different directions. Because I couldn't remember if he had said, a vision for biblical motherhood or a, bib- a, a biblical vision of motherhood. Now, that might not seem like much to you, but in the way that my mind begins to break up these things, I begin to sort of worry. What does he want me to do? do does he want me to try to give a vision for biblical motherhood, in other words, uh, address or try to articulate how motherhood is to be carried out according to Scripture? Or does He want me to address a biblical vision for motherhood in which I would try to uh, impart some sort of conception and uh, conviction about the whole idea of motherhood itself? In, In the first one... Well, I'll say this. It comes down to really two questions. Am I trying to answer this question, how should we think about motherhood? Or am I trying to answer the question, how should we go about motherhood? The first one, really everybody can, can uh, have a vision for biblical motherhood. Everybody has to uh, come to a conviction and a conception of what they believe motherhood is, how it ought to be received. Whereas when it comes to going about motherhood, there's really only one group of people that can do that today, and that's going to be people who are mothers. Some of you are able to see the quandary, how that could go in different directions. The rest of you are probably still confused. You're trying to figure out why is this even an issue. But for me, this was a struggle. So I eventually got back to the title that he gave me, which was a vision for biblical motherhood. So in, in the, the message, the sermon, that which is biblical is the motherhood, not the vision. That is to say, I've been tasked to answer this question, how should a woman go about motherhood? Now, in answering that, that will help you to develop a little bit of a, a biblical vision, but that's not the question. How should a woman go about motherhood? Well, then that brings us to a second problem, because there's no single passage in the Bible that addresses that topic all by itself. Here's how to be a mother. Turn to this page, this chapter. It'll answer all your questions. It'll give you all the answers. Just go here. It doesn't exist. There are lots of places where we, that where we could get insights into the role and function of a mother, but even then to try to cover all of those is well beyond the scope of any single message. I mean, it would take potentially years of messages to address just those texts and then factor into that the, the 10,000 different circumstances that a mother might find herself in and that the Bible might address, but it doesn't address it Under the heading of motherhood, it's just general Christian principles that that woman will apply as she's a mother. Then then you realize the topic is is broad. It's big. It's a huge topic. Many and various are the minutia of motherhood. And so what I did was I, I made the decision to just 
address one topic with regard to biblical motherhood. I want you to consider with me one primary area of motherhood, which I also believe is the most important area of motherhood, and that is the motherly responsibility to act as an intercessor for your children. The motherly responsibility to act as an intercessor for your child before God. Now, we all fail in many areas of parenting, and every mother in the room can say, I've failed in more areas than I've succeeded, probably. And, and it's helpful for us to go ahead and acknowledge that up front and to just sort of reckon with that. If you're a parent, you failed. If you're a mother, you failed. And that's okay to admit because in the final analysis, one of the most important things you have to learn as a mother is you were not given your children in order to be their God. Now, if you think that your, your task is to never fail, what you're saying is, I have to be a God before them, and you can't do it. You've not been given children to be their God. You've been given children in order to bring them to your God, to be an intercessor between them and God. And I do believe that that truth is one of those that you could see from cover to cover in the Scriptures, that, that godly parents bring their children to God. Now, and I, I have specifically in mind the responsibility of praying for your children. And so this is my approach. I want to look at a biblical account of a mother acting on behalf of her child as a general pattern of what the relationship between mother and child and God looks like or might look like in the area of intercessory prayer. Now, you might say, I'm not a mother and I'll never be a mother because I'm a man. Well, if you're, if you're a father, everything that I'm going to say applies. I'm going to be preaching this at a women's conference, so I'm going to be addressing specifically the mothers. But again, men, you're allowed to listen in. Uh, maybe, maybe you're not a mother, not a mother yet, will never be a mother. Well, let all of this that you're hearing be an encouragement in, in a couple ways. We all need to understand that, uh, this is at least my opinion, I believe that being a mother is, is very near kin to being a foreign missionary. And in many ways, harder than being a foreign missionary. In many ways, more trying than being a foreign missionary. And yet no less rewarding and no less worthy of our aspirations and no less worthy of all of us having a biblical vision for it. Uh, lifting it up, elevating the role of a mother and saying it's a really big deal to be a mom. It's not a light thing. It's not a small thing. The world that we live in is growing increasingly less impressed with motherhood. They see motherhood as a trap. They see motherhood as a snare, a burden, as a hindrance. All of us, whether you're a man, woman, boy, girl, father, mother, wife, husband, all of us, if we ever hear anything like that come into our ears, we ought to respond with no, 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 no. It's not a trap. It's not a hindrance. It's not a burden. It's not a light thing. It is a huge thing. And I would, I would suggest that people who think that it's not impressive have not been in the room with an actual biblical mother very long. Because when you see it lived out, when you watch it, you realize... This is a spectacle. This is an amazing thing to watch. It's, it's a big deal. Ultimately, all of us can see, I think, in this passage, a way that we ought to pray for our children or that we ought to pray for anyone. 
So I want to read the passage. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. Verses 21 to 28. And I want especially you mothers to listen to this story like a mother. Put yourself in the shoes of this woman. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now first let me just give a, a, a quick contextual re- overview, lest anybody say, you know, this passage is not about prayer at all. Well, let me tell you what it is about, and I think we can work our way there. Jesus has left the region of the Jews... And he has now traveled to a region of the Gentiles, the the region of Tyre and Sidon. Mark tells us that he didn't want anybody to know that he was there. He was trying to get away for rest. This woman comes seeking deliverance for her daughter from a demon. Twice the Lord offers her no help. She persists, exercising great faith. She's commended for her great faith and her daughter is healed. Primary lessons that we would glean from this if we were just asking, what what does Matthew have in mind as he's putting this in his gospel? I think first, what we see is a clear revelation of what we call the historia salutis, or the history of salvation, the the unfolding, advancing plan of redemption. We get a a little shadow of what is about to be, and that is that God is about to turn His saving gaze to the nations. The the Jews are going to reject Christ, and so the gospel door is going to be opened to the Gentiles. And here we see a little shadow of that, this Gentile woman coming in a place where Christ wasn't even wanting to be found, and yet she comes after Him. The other thing that we see here, sort of the flip side of that from her angle, is a commendation of great faith in a Gentile woman. He commends her faith. That's also, I think, associated with that advance in the history of redemption. Not only is God turning His gaze to the Gentiles, but here we see a Gentile turning her gaze in faith to Christ, the the Jewish Messiah. And, And along that picture, I would say any commendation of faith in any practice sets an example for us all. If we were to ask, is... Is the passage primarily about Christ and His power and what He can do? Absolutely. But anytime that Christ commends faith, we ought to say, then I want that faith. I want to be like that. I want to, Christ to look at me and say, 
Great is your faith. We, we want to exemplify that. Now, the Christian life as a whole is to be a life of faith. The lives that we live in this flesh, we are to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. That goes for every circumstance of life. It is to be carried out in faith. That also goes for every role that we have in life. Every, every role. If the role is father, then I have to be a father in faith. If the role is mother, you have to be a mother in faith. Every particular role. So then, though we don't have a, a single paragraph or chapter in the Bible that lays out all of the details of biblical motherhood, I think we can say without hesitation that a Christian mother is to exercise her motherhood by faith. Mothers have to walk by faith. And I'll, I'll summarize what that faith looks like. There, the conviction that as a mother you are insufficient for the task of motherhood. A conviction that God is all sufficient for the task and therefore you must look to Him at every point. That, that's a summary of motherhood by faith. I'm insufficient. God is all sufficient. Therefore I come to Him specifically as a mother. And again, another uh, major function of this motherhood by faith is bringing your children to God. You, you do this through teaching and instructing them from the Scriptures, teaching them about godliness. You do this by uh, making sure that they're prepared and ready and brought to church and you sort of oversee how they, they sit in the pews and you're training them over the years what is expected in a worship service. Those are ways that you bring, you're pointing the gaze of your children to God. Not yourself, God. Keep looking at God. Keep, you're, you're training them to do this. And again, undergirding all of that, I believe, is intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is a way that you take your children to God even when they're still asleep. Maybe they've already gone to bed. Maybe they hadn't got up yet. Maybe they're outside playing. You can take your children to God. Bring them before Him in prayer. So this is my primary claim Biblical motherhood or Christian motherhood will be distinctly marked by this trait. A Christian mother prays for her children. Worldly mothers, unchristian mothers do a lot of the same things you all do. They nurse their children. They give their children baths. They change their diapers. They clean up after them. They, they teach them, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. They train them how to live in society to be kind. But a Christian mother will be marked by this distinct trait only found in Christian mothers. And that will be that they are coming to God to intercede for their children in prayer. They are prayerful in their motherhood. Or we could say Christian mothers exercise the role and function of mother by faith, which will prove itself in this fact. They pray for their children. So I want to use this example of the Syrophoenician woman, a woman of great commendable faith as sort of a, a template, uh, a pattern where we can look at, we can consider what, it, what a biblical Christian faith-filled mother looks like and in the area of intercessory prayer and some of the things that will come along with it. So, number one, you're going to have to learn to trust mothers in God's providence. If you're going to be found praying for your children, it's not going to be just because you heard a sermon and said, you know what, i got to get to work. No, you're going to have to actually look beyond, above a sermon, and you're going to have to trust 
and believe, have some convictions about the providence of God. Look at verse 21. It says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, like I said, we, we learn in Mark's gospel that he was trying to hide. He didn't want to be found. But we also know the end of the story. Jesus didn't want to be found. And yet, at the end of the story, this woman and her daughter is healed. So the attempt on, on the behalf of Christ to go away and hide actually leads to the healing of this woman's daughter. So that in the providence of God, and even uh, we could say uh, working along with the, the humanity of the man Jesus that needed to rest, Christ was where this woman was. And this woman was near where Christ was. And this leads us to the first point regarding motherhood and providence. I'll, I'll quote and summarize from our confession with regard to providence. God, in His infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least to the end for which they were created so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without His providence. God actively works every detail of every moment of every day in every place for every person or thing in the universe all the time. He is working every detail out, which means nothing befalls you by chance or without God's providence. God decrees, God arranges, God orders, God governs everything that happens in your life. And we have to learn to trust that, to believe it and to trust it. Uh, Here's a question that is probably controversial in our present society. Are you a woman? If you can say yes to that question. God decreed that from eternity and worked it out in time. It's not an accident. It's not a, 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 a mystery of biology. That This just happened to work. No, God decreed that, that it would be so. Are you a mother? God decreed that from eternity. Worked it out in time. It's not an accident. Your children are the product of the eternal decree and plan of God. That you have them and they have you. God orchestrated that. In His infinite wisdom, He determined that you are the woman for the job of mother to those children who have been given to you. It's not an accident. It's all on purpose. Every circumstance, issue, or outcome in your life and theirs is governed by that same providence. God has literally moved and shaken nations and empires and cultures from the beginning of time to bring it to the place where your children would be held in your arms. They would call you mother. You would call them by whatever name you pick. God gave you that responsibility and that's in His providence. He declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. Therefore, with regard to motherhood, don't ever ask, what in the world have I gotten myself into? Because you didn't get yourself into it necessarily. It was the providence of God. Rather, you should thank the gracious God of providence for ordering the affairs of history to present you with an opportunity to disciple eternal souls. Thank God for His willingness to sanctify you through the blessing of motherhood. 
you know that the joys of motherhood are the highest of joys. At the same time, the hardships and sorrows of motherhood are the deepest of sorrows. But what do we sing all the time? He sanctifies to us our deepest distresses. Even the sorrows and anguishes of, of motherhood, you have to say it's the providence of God. He's brought this along. He is so desiring of my sanctification that He would even bring me through these sorrows and distresses. It was divine providence that ordered the events that we're reading about here. Divine providence brought Christ to Tyre and Sidon and brought this woman to hear of Christ. And that same act of providence has worked and is working still today, making you a mother, giving your children to you, arranging every circumstance of life that you will face as a mother and that they will face as your children. So trust Him. If we know all of this and we believe all of this, then when it comes to the souls of your children, why would you turn anywhere else for help than this God who has orchestrated every bit of it, all of it? He's working every detail. Why would you look somewhere else? Why would you look to, to a blog or, or you know, somebody who can articulate their parenting thoughts in a, in a picture? You know, Look to God. He's orchestrated these things. So trust providence. Secondly, in light of that, you have to recognize your responsibility to God for your children. In the providence of God, mothers, you've been given a stewardship. Not an ownership, a stewardship. Therefore, when it comes to, we say, well, I trust God. God providentially has given me these children. Therefore, you will answer to Him. You have a responsibility to Him for how you mother your children. Nobody else, God. You have a stewardship before God, a responsibility to God. Notice verse 22, it says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me. O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Again, Mark tells us that she heard of him and then came. No doubt she heard of his power to heal the sick, to cast out demons. It seems to me like, based on what she says, she heard a lot more than that. Because she refers to him as Lord. She refers to him as son of David. She, she is confessing things about him that really were, were almost exclusively Jewish in nature. What she heard about him led her to come to Christ on behalf of her daughter. She, she understood, I have this daughter with this problem. Now I've heard of this man who I believe can fix this problem. Therefore, I now have an obligation to bring my daughter to this man. There's a, there's a, that, that responsibility was laid upon her. She knew, I've got to see this man. She knew her daughter's need. She knew that she wasn't able to help. And she had become convinced that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, was able to do what she could not do. Now, mothers, are you convinced of that same reality or these same realities? Are you actually convinced... I'm in need. Just personally, for yourself, you're, you, you are in need. Are you convinced of your impotence? Are you convinced that apart from Christ, you are desperate and, and needy and have, have nothing? Thinking of your children. Mothers, do you realize that without Christ, your little ones are damned where they sit right now? 
Samuel Rutherford said, they're fuel for the flames of hell, apart from Christ. Now we just discussed providence. Providence gives us stewardship. We have a responsibility, but the flip side of that is we must understand, or we, we must not mistake providence for omnipotence. In other words, God didn't give you your children because He knew you would be powerful enough for the job. And you, you learned that a few, few days, weeks, months, years into motherhood. God wasn't offloading a job onto you because He said, well, you're just as powerful as me and I've got a lot going on, so I'm just going to let you handle this one. Providence does not equal omnipotence. You are not powerful. Rather, providence has brought forth an occasion for God to show His omnipotence in your weakness. And so you must come to Him for mercy, as this mother did. Go to Christ and seek His pity for one such as you. As a, as a mother, you have to go to Him in that role as one who's helpless, who's needy. And you need, to, you need Him to look on you in pity. We would say you need Him to feel sorry for you. You need Him to have mercy upon you. You need Him to help you, just like this woman did. And you have to also come with the right perspective of who Christ is. She refers to Him as Lord. She's saying, you're the master, you're the ruler, you're the sovereign God. She calls Him the Son of David, God's promised Messiah King, who governs all of the affairs of God's people, the Lion Lamb, who opens the seals of History and executes the providence of God for the sake of the saints of God. See, if you're going to properly fulfill your obligations as a mother, you have to begin at this point by recognizing impotence, powerlessness, weakness, coming to Him seeking mercy from Him. He is a God of tender mercy, but you have to come and, and show up. You, you need it. You must have... You must also come with a right understanding of the needs of your children. The needs, I should say the true needs of your children. This woman knew her child was possessed by a demon. Now, perhaps your children are not possessed by demons. But their, their condition might be in some ways equal if not worse they were conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. Their hearts are darkened. Their minds are alienated from God. They, they may not have another entity possessing them, but by nature they have their very own depravity. It, it's just them. Nothing has to come into them to make them wicked. They come out that way. They come out opposed to God. Apart from the work of regeneration, they are blind to the glory of God. Their hearts are bound up with folly and they can do nothing to help themselves because they have no desire to help themselves. I think we say these things are true, but deep down I wonder if we actually believe these things. The reality is that many, if not most, of the sweet little things that your children say and do, even with regard to spiritual things, are to please you, to make you happy. Because they look at you like God. It's not likely, likely, that's, that's why they're doing those things. That's why they say those things. They are blind to the glory of God. Their hearts are full of folly. And in light of this, you have to understand that you have a responsibility as a Christian mother to come to Christ on behalf of your children. They are lost. They will not come. 
They are blind. They don't know the way. They're powerless. They're ignorant apart from Christ. Now, your intercession for your children is never a substitute for their personal coming. In other words, we don't say, well, that's, that's all on them. You know, they got to deal with the Lord, so I'm just going to stay out of it. No, we don't do that. We pray. But we also help them to understand that they must go to Christ for themselves. But you must go to God for your children. You must go powerless, seeking mercy from the God of tender mercy on behalf of children who can do nothing for themselves, especially in their, their, their youngest years. You, you, wonder, you know, those first early weeks where you're like moving your face, really, you're like, how far can they see? Like they can't even, their eyeballs aren't even seeing very far. So spiritual perception, mental perception takes a while. They don't, they, they know nothing. You have a job to pray for your children. Notice how she speaks. She says, have mercy on me. Not mercy on my daughter. Have mercy on me. She's not possessed. Her daughter's possessed. She prays for mercy for herself almost as if she were caught up in her daughter's condition. As if mercy upon her daughter would equally be mercy upon her and vice versa. Mercy on her would be mercy for her daughter. In this we learn that as a praying mother, you have to enter into the true spirit of intercessory prayer, uh, which begins by thinking vicariously, uh, putting yourself in their shoes, in, in the shoes of your children. Don't, don't mistake their sin and their folly as cute displays of innocent immaturity, but as the fruit of their sinful nature in Adam. And think that way. It's not cute. It's their nature, bound up. We're just beginning to see with our youngest. as You'll get close to him and sometimes he pushes away or he grabs and pulls. And I realize if he was strong enough, he'd kill me. Right now, he would. He's not strong enough. Think of the horror of damned children. Just sit and think about it sometime. My children, this blessing but then turned into what feels like a curse. My children lifting up those little eyes in hell, crying out, I'm in anguish, I'm in torment in this flame. Just think about that from time to time. Think. Surely that'll help you cry out for mercy for yourself and for them. It'll stir you up and then you have to pray vicariously. And I believe, I, I think this is the difficulty of intercessory prayer because you have to actually uh, exercise a felt sympathy and compassion for the other person. You know, this goes beyond, Lord be with them, whatever that means. It goes beyond that to, I'm, I'm feeling they have not come. I have come in their place. It's almost as if the answer to the prayer is dependent purely on your intercession there on behalf of God. Now this, I think, is easier for our children than it would be for, for other people, but it's still difficult. I think this is what's displayed often in the Gospels. When you see people come to Christ on behalf of somebody else, think of the man who was lowered down in the roof, and the, then Christ looked at the faith of the people who did all the work. They dug a hole in the roof and they're lowering down their friend, and He heals the friend for their faith. The friend wasn't exercising faith. They were, and Christ 
answered their prayer for their friend. This is very often what happens in intercessory prayer. Christ, God is looking at the prayer of the one who's willing to come. And He answers that way because the other is not coming. That, that is what it means to intercede on their behalf. To pray in the, true, in the spirit of true intercession is to recognize that you are and have been given this responsibility to enter into the place of mediation between God and the one who will not or cannot Come And when I say mediation, I don't mean salvific mediation. I mean it in this as synonymous with intercession. To intercede means to go on behalf of another. You are coming on their behalf. If this woman did not come to Christ for her daughter, who would have come? Think about that in your prayers. If I don't go, who's going to go? If this woman had not come, who would have come? Probably nobody. Now, could someone else have come? Sure. But this mother was not willing to leave the praying up to chance. Maybe, perhaps, some out there somewhere there's somebody praying. She came to Christ as if there were no chance that anyone else would ever come. She came as if I'm the only one. It's all hinging on me. Now, we know there are other things at stake, but when it comes to prayer, when it comes to true prayer, we're not... We're not chalking things up to doctrines where we have no, no responsibility. The, the obligation lays upon us. She, she says, have mercy on me, but it's for the sake of her daughter. Have mercy on my daughter for the sake of my prayers. She's, she's truly interceding. So mothers, you must pray for your children as if the eternal state of their souls depended exclusively on your prayers. Again, we could say all day long, well, God is sovereign. God's going to do what He wants to do. Can God save a sinner apart from a single prayer from anybody for their souls? Absolutely. We know that there are bigger factors at play. And you might have great confidence that other people are praying. People in the church are praying. Grandparents are praying, whatever. But we don't ever presume. We don't ever allow what God may do and what others may do stand as a substitute for what I should do, especially in prayer. What we have in the story is a, a, a picture of a mother who did her job as a mother. She did her job. If you are a mother, you must pray for your children. Providence has given you a stewardship, and you are responsible to God for that stewardship, primarily to bring them back to Him. They are like talents given. You don't bury them in the sand. You exercise your responsibility so that someday you can bring back and you can say, here's what, has, here's what I've done with what you have given me. Number three, do not be surprised by the trial of your faith. Do not be surprised by the trial of your faith. A lot of this, the idea behind this comes from a book by Samuel Rutherford called The Trial and Triumph of Faith. It's not really about this woman uh, so much as it is about Christ, but... He points out this, the ideas of these trials of faith. Remember that God works all things for our good. Very often that means enduring great trials of faith in order to be sanctified. In order to learn to keep coming to Christ. And that's what we see here, verses 23 and 24. But He did not answer her a word. And His disciples came and begged Him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Lord completely ignores her. 
the disciples despise her. And here we see, I, I went back and forth. I wondered, you know, when it says he answered, was he answering her? Was he answering them? Is she, is she just sort of watching them converse? Like, do you not hear what I'm saying? But we see that the reality that trials may come upon your faith as you're praying for your children. And you have to expect this. I think a lot of what we do as parents we do or don't do based on the fact that our expectations are wrong. We don't expect trials and hardships. And when trial or hardship comes, then we just decide, I guess it doesn't work. And we try to try something else. No, expect the trial of your faith. Don't be surprised by it. She's ignored by the Lord, so it seems. He didn't answer our, her prayer Although I think it's safe to assume that he knew what he would do, so he's purposefully trying or testing her faith. So mothers, as you pray, remember, he already knows what I'm going to ask before I ask it. He already knows all of my needs. He already knows what he's going to do in answer to my prayer. And therefore, you should not be surprised by what seem to be unanswered prayers. You might pray long, and it seems like nothing's happening. It might feel like He's not answering you a word. Don't be discouraged. Remember, you are being sanctified too. This act of Christ is meant to sanctify you. It's meant to keep you coming to Him. It's meant to draw out of you the deepest displays of dependence upon Him. He's, he's sort of testing the waters. How far are you willing to go? How long are you willing to cry out? How, how hard are you willing to come after me? He, he wants to draw that out of us. She's ignored by the Lord. The disciples of Christ beg that He sends her away. They're annoyed by her presence. Here we see this reality. Very often well-meaning people will misunderstand your concern for the souls of your children. There are statements and and related ideas that pervade our culture and they, they seep our way, their way into our church. Ideas summarized in statements like, let kids be kids. Boys will be boys. Or, well, they're just typical teenage girls. Don't take their innocent childishness so serious. They can't even really understand spiritual matters yet. Don't get so worked up about things. That kind of thinking, that kind of unbiblical thinking, it, it infects your mind and it begins to relax that burden you once felt for their condition. You, it, you begin to think, well, why am I praying so hard? I mean, they're just being what they are by nature. Exactly. And we're asking for God to change their nature. But it, it lowers that burden it, or it lightens that burden. I don't feel quite so burdened to come like this woman came. Some of you aren't quite as concerned about the well-being or the soul-being of your children as you once were because you bought into some pop culture psychology that explains everything according to evolutionary biology. Right? Recapitulation theory. Well, they're just going through a stage. It's just a phase. You know where that language comes from. They, they have to go through these evolutionary stages to get to where we have come as mature um, Anglo-Saxon man, or whatever it might be. 
uh, adult man, adult woman. They're, they're going through the phases. Well, you don't interrupt the phases. They, they have to go through this to mature. Don't buy into that. Don't, don't believe that. Don't listen to that. I think God is bigger than phases and seasons. Don't be so agreeable to non-Christian thought. The whole world might think you're crazy. Even fellow Christians might think you're crazy. You just keep praying. You keep praying. This, this brings us back to providence. You're their mother. You've got a job to do. And there is a sense in which when it comes to your duty as a mother, as a praying mother, you have to set aside everybody else's opinion and just cry out for your children. And that, fathers and mothers, sadly, that often happens in the context of the church where one family or group of parents has to say, listen, I don't care what that other family says. This is what we're doing because this is what the Bible teaches. Now, we don't want disunity among, the church, among church families, do we? We don't want that. But ultimately, when it comes down to me, I have to decide for my family what we're going to do. If that means we, you, you have to walk away, you have to leave, you have to step down, whatever it is, I've got a responsibility to raise my children, right? You have to put out everybody else and say, that's not what this book says. I can't do anything but what this book says. If that's a problem, then I'll stand before God and answer for my stewardship and you will for yours. And mothers, you have to think that way. Just ask yourself, what does the Bible say about a child? It's not good. It's not cute. It's not hopefully optimistic. So expect these kinds of trials. Expect what seems to be unanswered, unanswered prayers. Expect for people to misunderstand your, your fervency and how you're dealing with your children. But number four, be persistent. Be persistent. Verse 25, But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered her not a word, the disciples reviled her, and yet she persists in prayer. Now, if there's anything that we learn in Scripture, especially in the Gospels from Christ about prayer, it's that the Lord encourages and commends persistence in prayer. You think of the uh, impudent neighbor. You think of the persistent widow. She, the man says, she's just wearing me down by her persistent coming. What's God saying? He says, that's, that's how I am. That's how this thing works. I want to see you come and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. It, because it's in the persistence that we actually learn that we are sanctified, that we're brought closer to Lord, to the Lord. In persistence is where success is achieved. What is success? Persistence. Good stewardship. It is incumbent upon stewards that they be found faithful. Period. Well, what about the success? Success is faithfulness. Persist. Keep praying. So in your prayers... Prepare to be persistent because more than likely it will take years. Can God regenerate young people? Absolutely. Very often, even in young people, it, it, it takes a while for us to be able to really say, I think they're actually, truly, really, like that's a credible profession. They're, not, they're no longer just saying or doing what mom and dad tell them to say or do. It, it may take years before you get to that point. And in the waiting time, it might seem like your prayers are going unheard, but you persist. Don't stop praying. Some of us pray like we spank. Right? Well, I, I did it. I did it three times. I did it for two years, three years, four years, five years. And you know what? Lo and behold, the child's still a sinner. 
I guess spanking doesn't work. Let's find something else to try for my special child, right? We, we do that with prayer. We pray and pray, maybe two years, three years, four years, five years. Well, they're still a sinner. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's another option. Maybe there's something else we can do to try for my special child. No, we persist. Why? What do we say? Well, it just doesn't work for my child. Define work. Where in this book did anybody say, well, if you spank them for three years real consistently on the fourth year, you'll see they never sin again. <laughs> it doesn't say that. Again, unmet expectations. We think it's supposed to work this way. When it doesn't work this way, let's try something else for my little sweetheart because they're just different than every other child in the world or God didn't have them in mind when He pinned His Word. So we, we move on to something else so quickly, forgetting that faithfulness is success. It's persistence. Don't teach your children that you get to decide when God's rules no longer apply to your family. Don't teach them that. And when it comes to praying, don't pray for a little while and say, well, it didn't work. They didn't get, they're not born again. They're not out preaching on the street corner. I guess praying doesn't work for my child. They're, they're special. Let's try something. No. Be persistent in your praying. Let me quote Samuel Rutherford. He says, it is said, he answered her not a word. But it is not said he heard not one word. These two differ much. Christ often heareth when he doth not answer. His not answering is an answer and speaks thus. Pray on, go on, and cry. For the Lord holdeth his door bolted fast, not to keep out, but that we may knock and knock. That's what he wants to see, persistence. Keep coming and keep coming. Be persistent. Notice it says here, after her first attempt was when she then came and kneeled. After he answered her not a word, after the disciples reviled her, she then came closer and took an even greater posture of humility. And she says in her second prayer, Lord, help me. Just imagine the state of this woman. There's probably nobody else on earth as, as pitiful as a mother at the end of her rope, desperate for the souls of her children. And she prays, Lord, help me. A very articulate, creative, flowery, long prayer. No, that's not what we have. Three words. Very often our prayers are cold and formal because they are sacrifices which cost us nothing but not this mother. She implores him, Lord, help me. Three words. And, is, and isn't it true that a cold, formal heart can, can very often articulate a much longer, much more formal prayer, but a heart at its end, utterly helpless, barely utters a word? Rutherford again, he says, Words are but the body, the garment, the outside of prayer. Sighs are nearer the heart work. Groans, the inner, the inner urges of the heart. You know God can hear those, right? He, he knows when, when, you, when you say, I don't, I don't even know what to say. God says, got it. I've heard it already. You mothers must labor to see your children's condition so clearly that it weighs heavy upon you. It needs to be heavy. Motherhood is not light. It's not for the faint of heart. It needs to be heavy upon you because when it is, then you will pray from your heart. And it might not be long and eloquent, but it will be heard in heaven. So you pray. His lack of response 
did not dissuade her, it humbled her. A lost person can mutter a prayer, but they'll give up pretty easily. They won't be persistent. But a Christian will be humbled. They will pray more when they feel unheard. And again, she says, help me. Her daughter's the one in need, but she ties her daughter's suffering up with her own self because to help her daughter is to help her, and to help her is to help her daughter. And so with your children, tie yourself up in their condition. You've got a stewardship here, a responsibility. Again, this is a Rutherfordism. Heaven, he would say, heaven will be two heavens for someone who's led someone to Christ. Your heaven will be two heavens for me is what he would say. Would it not equally be sort of like a hell on earth to have to sit and contemplate the fact that your children could drop into hell at any moment and you don't know the state of their souls? If we are to, if we're commanded to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, then surely there is some virtue to be found in sharing in the joys and sufferings of others. And I don't think when we're commanded to do those things, Paul's saying, fake it. If they're crying, fake some crying. If they're happy, fake some happiness. No, he's saying enter into it with them and join them in it. Tie yourself up with them. So then look at the condition of your child's soul as if you were tied up in it. With their salvation, I mean, coming to a clear, what, what you would say would believe you could, ex- what we would say, I believe that I can accept my child's profession as a credible profession of faith in good confidence, do you not understand that that would be like heaven on earth? To come to that understanding? You know, we, we hope and we wait and we hope and we wait and we pray and we talk and we hope. And I hope that you are asking your children and telling your children, I need to know the state of your soul. I need you to talk to me and explain it to me. As they get older, and we have a lot of young ones, but tell them, let them know that you need to know where they stand with God. I need to hear you say it. But do you not realize that when that time comes, if the Lord has mercy on them and you are able to say with confidence, I believe they've truly been converted. Do you not realize what that's going to feel like? What else is there in this life? As a parent, there's nothing else. Paul said to the Thessalonians, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. As long as if you are enduring, that is like life to us. John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. That's what, we, that's what we're after. There's no greater joy. And yet there would be no greater sorrow than thinking of their condemnation. And when you get to that point where the greatest, my greatest joy is to see my children knowing the Lord, but my greatest sorrow is thinking that they, they, the condemnation of God is over their head, when you get there, it'll weigh heavy on you and you'll pray. And it might just be three words, Lord help me. But you'll pray. And remember again as you're persistent that Christ is working on you as well. He will have you come to Him, whatever it takes, and He'll use the state of the souls of your children to bring you to Himself. This is one of those situations I think where God says, well, you can come to me freely and willingly, stewarding your responsibility well, or I will bring you to me. And I'll use your children to bring you to me. And we know of faithful servants of God who have walked these types of sorrows of anguish and pouring out their souls to God for children that grow up into later years and are still unconverted. Those, those, those types of men and women, they really learn how to pray because it's serious. They get serious with the Lord. But be persistent. Trust Him, trust you. Number five, 
or trust Him sanctifying you. Number five, leave sovereignty to God. Leave sovereignty to God. Verse 26, And He answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now this is, I think this is an even greater test of faith than not being hurt at all. Because He answers her, He acknowledges her, but not in the affirmative. He he seems to imply, yes, I do have a saving purpose. I do have a saving plan. And you're not in it. And your daughter's not in it. Here we learn that sometimes the very opposite of your prayers will come to pass. You will pray. Maybe your children are hardened. The more you pray, maybe the more dark they seem to be. Does that mean prayer isn't working? Does that mean we stop, we pull back, whoa, 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 don't pray so much, they're getting worse. Go back to how it was before, once a week. They were doing well when it was, it was kind of like spanking, right? You, I did it four times. They just seem to get more hardened. Do we give up? Do we stop? No. But very often it will seem like the opposite of your prayers are coming to pass, especially in their teen years. I've heard and I've seen it seems like a lot of children are almost programmed that there's a switch, that somebody flips at a certain age where they're programmed to rebel against their parents. And that may happen. It doesn't have to happen, but it may happen. And it might seem that you've prayed and prayed persistently. Finally, you begin to see some change. But the change is actually the opposite of your prayers. It seems like God has finally answered, but He's answered in the negative Christ here refers to the children. That's Israel's bread. And He refers to the Gentiles as dogs, this woman as a dog. In other words, it sounds like He's saying, look, lady, I've got a mission and you're not in it. These over here, these are my mission. This is where my attention is. And so often it seems that He hears and is answering all prayers except yours as you pray for your children. It might seem like God is saying, yeah, I do have a saving mission, but it's these children over here, not yours. And you, you'll see other children, perhaps, radically converted at a very young age. Or you'll read stories and hear biographies of children converted very young, and yours aren't. Other children will grow in grace, and their parents are so delighted. And you look and you say, man, what must it be like to be there? And you might begin to think, well, I guess I've got God's answer. He's he's still saving people, just not anybody in my household. And this is where you have to be careful not to fall into the trap of comparing the work of God in other people to the work of God in your own children. God's sovereign, not you. Let God be sovereign over His dispensation of grace. Don't be deterred. Keep praying. Remember, you're a steward. You are just a steward. You bring them... To God. A steward doesn't look at what everybody else is doing and say, well, well they're not stewarding well and they're, they're stewarding and look what they got and, and they got paid more than I got even though I've worked the hottest hours of the day. No. God dispenses His grace as He sees fit. It's your job to be faithful as a steward. <coughs> Leave sovereignty up to God. Number six, kill your pride and prove your helplessness. Kill your pride. Imagine what it what it will be like in this church as our children grow up and we, we know that we're pouring out our souls and we see some radically converted and then we have to look at others and, and sort of the unspoken uh, issue is they're not being converted. They're, they're growing up, they're having more and more birthdays, another birthday, another birthday, another birthday and they're still lost. And how, 
really humiliating that might be as a parent to have to say, look, I'm doing everything I know how to do and God is not pouring out His grace as I've sought Him. That can be humiliating, but you've got to kill that. You've got to get over that. Look at verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She doesn't get upset by the fact that he just sort of offhandedly referred to her as a Gentile dog. He, she affirms the truth, but she's not deterred by what he says. She can't be thrown off. You can't stop this woman. It is true that God's work of grace may take a different route with your children than with others. And you may find that God has blessed others and is blessing others while He's not answering your specific prayers. But let me ask you, just imagining this woman on her knees at the feet of Jesus with a daughter at home possessed by a demon, do you think this lady is really concerned about what's going on with the nation of Israel? Do you think she's really concerned about the big picture, what other parents are, are, are seeing? No. She, does, she's on, she's, she has one track, one focus. I've come here on one mission to intercede for my daughter. You got a mission elsewhere? That's fine. But I'm here on this mission. She had one thing on her mind. Just as Jesus was charged by His Father to lay down His life and take it up again, so this woman comes on a mission and she won't be stopped. She's blind to all derision. She's deaf to negative responses. It seems like she's resolved. I'm not leaving until I get my answer. And so she persists. But notice how her pride is gone. She's not, she has no pride at all. She's willing to take the lowest spot, even the last place if need be. There's no pride in her at all. You have a priority to Israel? Fine. Call me a dog? Fine, I'm a dog. Treat me like a dog. Don't dogs eat crumbs? Is there not something brushed off the table? Does not something fall off the table for others? She persists in seeking grace from Christ. She shows here that she knows something that very few people understand. She exemplifies the kind of adoration for Christ that could only be characteristic, I believe, of a true saint. And that is this. She understands that even the crumbs of Christ's grace are sufficient for worlds of needy sinners. Rutherford again. There is more in a piece of a corner of Christ's heart than in millions of worlds of angels and created comforts. Mothers, you must go to Christ and seek grace and strength from Christ to bring your children to Him even if it's only for crumbs. Don't look at what God's doing all over the place and say, well, let's see, let's calculate this. There's five saved children over there and 16 over here. The way I, the way I look at it, His grace must be running pretty thin. That's, in, that's absurd. There's enough grace in Christ to save a thousand worlds. It would be like if your, your, your child came walking out of the ocean wet and you thought you expected the, the level of the water to drop because of the water that was left on their body. It would never happen. You would never notice it. The grace that He's poured out already, it is not detracted from what's left in Him at all. Take the low spot. Be willing. Come low. Take the crumbs. There will be times when you might look around and it, you might... It may seem like other mothers and children are dining early on the bread of Christ. 
And those children might certainly, there will be other children that will attain to higher grace, higher gifts, higher callings. But would you not be satisfied with little gifts, little calling, little station in life if you knew your children knew the Lord? Like even a crumb? Would it not be alright if you said, Lord, they might not be known to the world. They might not be on YouTube. They might not be on Sermon Audio. As a matter of fact, they might be like the rest of us. They might be like no-name nobodies that nobody knows anywhere. But if they get a little bit of your grace, if they come to you, that's all I care about. That's all I'm concerned about. I think you'd be satisfied with that. I would. So when you're praying, don't compare yourself and your children to others. When you're praying, don't demand a certain standard. When you're praying, come low and say, Lord, I'll take crumbs. I just need your grace for my child. Then lastly, number seven, consider the rewards of intercession. Verse 28, Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now this is important. He says, great is your faith. How do we know that her faith was great? Well, number one, he said it. But why did he say it? Because she persisted in prayer. That's how you know that there is great faith. Persistence in prayer. And she receives a wonderful answer. Her daughter is healed instantly. Can you expect the same response? Can I stand here and tell you that if you will persist in prayer long enough, hard enough, with enough emotion and zeal, that your children will without a doubt certainly be saved? No, I can't do that. I can't say that. I do believe that we have good reason to be expectant and confident that when we observe the commandments of Christ in God's Word and we are faithful, that we can expect to see Him answer the way that He says He'll answer. But I can't guarantee any souls, the soul of any salvation. And this comes back to the concept of motherhood according to faith. Ultimately, a function of true faith is leaving the end of the matter in the hands of God. As a mother, you come to present your children and their souls to God, as it were, you, you sliding them across the table at His feet and just saying, I'm handing them to you. Please have mercy. Please have mercy. And there may be times when it seems like He slides them back to you and you say, no, I've given them to you. Have mercy on my children. You continue to pray. But think about this. Even if her daughter had not been healed, she had exercised great faith, commendable faith. She had done all that she could. So let me encourage you, mothers, pray for your children in such a way that regardless of the outcome, on the last day you won't have regrets. Or even prior to the last day. You you don't want to look at your children as they enter into their adult years, rebellious, and say, To be honest, I I could have prayed more. I could have done more. Fathers, you don't want to say, I could have have been a little more clear about the gospel. I could have have called them closer and had these conversations a a few more times. You don't want to regret that. You don't want to have that on your your conscience. She'd done all that she could. Many mothers have regretted a lack of prayer, but none have regretted praying too much. I, I don't know of any parent when their child has come to faith, that they've said, you know, to be honest, I probably prayed a little too much for them. Or even if their child doesn't come to faith, they've never said, well, I shouldn't have wasted all that time in prayer. Never. Never. 
you'll never regret. You'll never say, I prayed too much. In the Syrophoenician woman, we see an example of a mother who did her job. She knew Christ. She knew her child's need. She recognized her helplessness and she persisted in prayer. You will not regret being that kind of a mother or that kind of a father or that kind of a brother or sister or friend or co-worker. You won't regret that. As we come to the Lord's table, I want to connect this to Christ. Not merely in the passage that we've seen where He shows His compassion and His willingness to save and to help, but, but as an intercessor, we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse, beginning in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. For the former priests were many in number because they, prevent, they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for Him. Christ even now is exercising His function as a high priest, praying for us. I, have a, I wrote at some point in my Bible under this passage, Christ is saving His people and He does that through prayer. Christ is the preeminent, persistent, prayerful one. Another function of that priestly function or priestly role was His laying down of His life. A priest offers sacrifices to God. And the sacrifice that Jesus offered was His own self, His body and His blood poured out, given for our sins. I'll read from... Matthew's Gospel again, chapter 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Christ's body was broken for us. And at the Lord's table we remember that reality. And we come and we rest our faith upon Him. Hopefully you're, you're telling your children often to put their faith in the Christ. You can't, you can't die for their sins. But Christ is the supreme and only Savior offering the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. I'll read again the warning from 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as the elements are distributed, give your attention to meditation upon Christ, to confession of sins, a coming to Him for forgiveness, and remember to look beyond the elements to Christ Himself. And then we'll come to the table together.